0: Rolling. I know some of you are still warming up, but um, it's all right. I have a long intro, so so that doesn't matter. So so let me let me let me kind of throw out. I don't you know whenever it's necessary. You know it's always good to throw out a disclaimer at the, at the beginning. At least it helps you to understand where I'm at, so that when we're talking through the text, we have some kind of correlation between the preacher and the text. Um, this stuff, I mean, James' stuff in particular, this stuff, inc- it resonates with me incredibly. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a point where, you know, even studying this week and kind of going through this, this stuff where, you know, as prepared as I can be, I still feel so unprepared because, um, I mean, but basically what I've been trying to do is, you know, it's that, Lord, help me to preach what's appropriate. The context that we're living in right now in the UK, uh, how this text might apply to us, how James is actually doing it to the world he's living in, and how do I do that appropriately without my kind of political leanings or my uh, personal feelings kind of inflected. But we still have to preach about the times we live in, and I think that's been important for me to kind of like say, is this research helpful? Is this research accurate? So that when I teach it, it, it it's, it's it's more of the context that we are, so there's there's, there, there's a degree of objectivity, and also does it relate to the text? And so this is important. So you know, James James is, is is a charged book, and the emotion of the the emotion of the writer seems to come very clearly from the text. You know, Jason again done a a great job last week, giving us a. a, a an outline of what it means to be within the the, the the rich and the poor divide. And that is the subject I think is a very important one because I've been reading a lot of it, been watching a lot of what's going on in the media at the moment, and I want to kind of make my intro about that because my text today is pure application. And so I need to kind of sit down do a very long intro before I, I kind of get there so that when I actually preach it, there is, the, you'll understand the application. And so what I want to do is kind of give you a bit of my research well. You know, and I start with this kind of context. as You know, Jesus said the poor will always be with us. And, you know, the reason, w- and there's a very good reason why he makes that statement. Because the greedy will always be with us. There will always be greedy people. And so as, a, as, a, as, a, as an outlook, as, a, as, a, as an offshoot of that, is that there will always be poor people. And ultimately, we have greedy people because we have sin in the world, and sin basically makes people greedy. I want more. I want me. This is about me and what I want. So let me kind of give you a, a kind of a, a, an idea of where we are in the UK right now so that we can bring ourselves into James's world and kind of get some of his anger, maybe, some of his outrage in our own lives and maybe that might lead us to do something. Amen? All right. Philip Green. <laughs> this, is a, this person represents a perfect model of what James is talking about today. I've been following this guy's life and the collapse of BHS, not necessarily because I'm a shopper of BHS, but I think it's, a, it's an interesting thing because a, a number of years ago, um, especially within the, the, the 2008 collapse, people started to say things like, we are witnessing the death of capitalism. This is, is, this, is this basically where we've come? The poor get the raw deal, and the rich fat cats still get their fat checks, no matter what happens. But you know something? Before we get to Philip Green, I, we can't start talking about the player without talking about the game. So there's no point us looking at Philip Green and saying, yo, look at this. Our problem is not individual greed and individual corruption, it's systematic corruption. The game is loaded. Hate the game. Not the player. Hmm. Let me tell you something about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's slightly off target, you know, but it's, I think it's still relevant. The whole idea of tax havens. Let me start with that. Here's a statement from... Um, <clears throat> a Rowan Palin, a professor of international political economy. Um, he says this. While American states came up with the technique of bidding for corporations by liberalizing incorporation laws, basically lowering the tax level so you can attract businesses. That's what he's saying. So let's lower the tax for for non-residents so that more businesses will come into the US. He said, we must credit the British, however, with the technique of virtual residencies, allowing companies to incorporate in Britain without paying tax a development that at least one commentator believes is the foundation of the entire tax haven phenomenon. The UK is clearly critical to any future international efforts to combat tax haven, not at least as half a dozen of the most important tax havens are dependencies of the UK. Another statement from um, a Robert Palmer, campaign leader for banks' anonymous companies. David Cameron has shown real global leadership in tackling corruption. He now faces a credibility test. Today's news show that unless the government uses the upcoming summit to require the UK's tax havens to end anonymous companies' ownership, our own efforts won't be effective in fighting poverty and instability. We have to clean up our own backyard first. You know, I was recently watching um, the MPs debate in Philip Green, you know, about his knighthood, whether they should take that away. And it was interesting that as one MP after another came up to denounce him, what was also evident was that they had to say that he hadn't actually broken any laws. Him allowing BHS to collapse and setting up a patsy in Dominic Chappelle to kind of take the fall is, he he hadn't broken any laws. It's not lawful to be greedy, it's not unlawful to be greedy. And what was so funny as they were debating this was that he hadn't broken any laws, yet they were disgraced at him. I was wondering what were they really debating? Were they, and were they venting because, and I, I kind of came up with two options. Were they venting because it would mean that eventually the government would have to take taxpayers' money to fill this gap for the BHS pensioners? Or do they actually have a moral backbone and actually believe that greed is a bad thing and should not be... Uh, and should not represent, as it were, the lead citizens of our, com- uh, of our country. You know, 11,000 jobs, 20,000 pensions on the line, because of the money this guy's taken out to live in luxury. I was watching, um, again, another... Um, we recently got Netflix. Excellent. And I, by, by, one, by a chance, I ended up on this, um, this documentary, uh, very randomly, as we do, you know, slow TV night and all that. Um, and it's called "A Requiem for the American Dream." And um, it's an interview with Noam Chomsky, uh, a famous intellectual recently has passed away. But he was given his thoughts on this whole idea of capitalism. I, I do really recommend you watch it. It's very enlightening. He's not a Christian, uh, but his, uh, his intellectual aptitude towards looking at what's going on, particularly in his own country, was enlightening. And he talks through the American history and, and, and kind of notes how democracy is an illusion. Because real, the reality is, is that none of us actually really make, the, none of us really make any economic laws. He says, you know, one of the things he notes, he says that, have you noticed that as people go, and, and the recent presidential lecture is, is actually helpful, because we watched Hillary and Trump go head-to-head, and he says, have you noticed that people basically have stopped talking about policies? He said that the reason why people stop talking about policies is because all the deals that these people have made have been with, lo- with companies behind back doors. So that whatever you vote for, it doesn't really matter because they're going to get what they want first because they're the ones who are lobbying hard. They're the ones who are funding their campaigns. So it doesn't matter who you vote for. And he, and he is serious that democracy is an illusion. I could comment on Brexit, but I think that would be me, because the whole idea of MPs trying to overturn that thing, nannying us. Oh, you don't know what you're doing, because we need to support big business. Let me, let me kind of give you some of the outline of Noam Chomsky's views. He says he argues that Western capitalist nations are not really democratic. For an in interview, a truly democratic society is one in which all persons have a say in public economic policy. He has stated his opposition to ruling elites, among them institutions like the IMF, World Bank, and the GATT. He characterizes the US as a de facto one-party state. Viewing both the Republican Party and Democratic Party as manifestations of a single business party controlled by corporate and, finances intre- and financial interests. I would say, with the creation of New Labour in the UK as well, we have become a one-party state as well. And there's a reason why Corbyn is where he's at, because that would be a true two-party state. He is a strict socialist, but New Labour clearly went into the side of businesses. And so it doesn't matter who you would vote for, you're going to get the same policies. Noam Chomsky also said he, he views violent revolution, and this is important, Because I agree with this as well. He views violent revolution to overthrow a government as a last resort to be avoided if possible, citing the example of historical revolutions where the population's welfare has worsened as a result of the upheaval. So I don't believe, very much like the text, James is inciting us to revolt against the rich because my application today is about patience and not being about trying to make this world worked for us, like, well, when I'm rich, I'll will, will make it better. Not about that. You know, this is the Western style of government, and obviously, I don't want to kind of comment on the Eastern, because we don't live there and I, I think it will be unfair to comment on those. I just want to stick with the UK. But we see the world's style of dominance, of governance. What, what do we do? We say, well, you know, Richard, this is all we have. You know, it was good to actually look and see on BBC News this morning that Theresa May is now looking to kind of give a little bit more power to businesses. No, she seems to mean well, but we'll see. The proof is in the pudding, isn't it? But I want to take us, and I I believe, like you said, I have no time to kind of invest huge amounts of time into this. We're on a clock. But the reality is, look to Deuteronomy. How did God view people governing themselves? How did God set up Israel to try and avoid the types of pitfalls that we see in governance today, where he he is not, quote-unquote, strictly capitalist in how he sets up Israel, but he's not also strictly socialist either. You know, under Moses, Moses decrees that, you know, people can, as it were, be in debt for six years. But the sabbatical year, all debts were cancelled. Those who were sold into slavery and have given up lands on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all those lands would be given back. The reality is it, it it stops the poverty gap because it means that all those people who had a right to certain lands would have to get it back at some point. And that way, you will always find an easing of the burden of people where that gap could easily just go haywire. And I will assure you that the collapse of Israel was also tied with the fact that they never obeyed this law. Read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read Amos. Many of the indictments were not just spiritual, but the simple fact he says look at how you're treating your fellow Israelites. A man is sold for a slipper. It's not to say that slipper was just a way of basically demarking a deal was being done. It doesn't mean what it means, what it means. But it's like, you know, here you go. I'm going to sell you my slipper. Here's my slipper as proof. I'll give it to you. You know, look back at, um, you know, look in particular at Leviticus 25 about how God had seen this society. Also, look at Jeremiah 34 12 to 22. Write that down as reference. I was going to read it, but I'm not. Um, But again, it just talks about how basically people and the hired person is basically being robbed of their wages because people believe they don't have to pay them. And he says it's interesting that he said that some commentators looking at Jeremiah 34 now believe that it was ingrained in in Judah's law that you didn't have to do these things. So in a sense, what Jesus comes along, especially when you look through the Gospel of Luke, he says that you've nullified the law. You devour Wizzle's houses. You'd you'd actually, you're you're talking about your followers of Moses, but you don't follow Moses at all. You devour all their money. And then you say, ah, because I'm the anointed of the Lord. I'm given. am given to God. Jesus came back to fulfil the law. You know something? Let me tell you something. I've had to recent. I had. A, I had a conference back at my old college. This you know where uh, a very knowledgeable professor was talking about Deuteronomy and, and and kind of leading us back into the law. And I had. I went there very kind of like you know what? I, I don't know how I'm going to sit with this, but you know what? The law is not salvific in the way that some people think it is, but it was meant for our well-being, so we don't collide into each other. The law is good, and he started off by saying that. And you know what? Paul says the same thing. The law is good, because it helps us. It's not about, oh God, grace, 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 grace. Don't, you know, let me tread on everybody's toes. Grace, 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 grace. The law is good because it tells you need to be mindful of other people's interests. But I have more to say about that. You know, the weirdest thing is that the rich are also to be pitied. And not just kind of vilified. You know, and I want to use, for those of you who haven't seen... um, Lord of the Rings, please forgive me. But I, I think this is a great illustration. If you've read, please read it. Uh, but Gollum as a character. Why Gollum? I, I, there, was, there was a phrase, in, in, there was a point when Gandalf turns to Frodo and he tells um, Frodo, don't hate Gollum. He's to be pitied never understood it, you know, first watching it for entertainment purposes. Oh, what are you talking about, you know? Of course he's a villain. You know, look at, look at what he is. You know, you have this grey-skinned creature crawling around Middle-earth, eating raw fish, you know, with his little ring in his, po- you know, his, ring in his pocket. <laughs> when you understand the character of Gollum, here is this beggarly creature, Rundering around Middle-earth with the most powerful, most sought-after weapon. And look at how he's living. If you see the context, it's almost like he thinks he's got everything. But he's actually got nothing. You know, when we look back to what we were looking at last week in James, they're moth moth-eaten, it's, it's corrupt, it's, it's, they actually think that what they've got, their luxury, has actually led them into this mire. They're to be pitied, because they think this is it. And when we indulge in watching these things, MTV Cribs, Pip My Ride, all the rest of it, we are, we are looking at them, wallowing the mire and thinking, oh, I wish that was me. Proverbs 30, 9a, Aguirre warns that the rich will deny God because he adds nothing to them. What has God got to add to me? You know, I can't imagine um, what it's like to never have to look at the cost of something. You know, to walk in the shop and just, you know, that, 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 you know. I always have to count the cost to some extent. And I and I, and I think there's a there is something good about that because it humbles us. You know, it humbles us. It it knows it makes us have to pause before we go somewhere. And it makes us have to check ourselves. And I and I and I believe that what a girl is saying in Proverbs 39 is like saying, you know what, never let me in it put in that position where I never have to say I don't really need God for anything now, because I'm, I'm kind of making my life right now all there is. And much of my sermon today is really about don't make that decision. I have to preach that context, because I know there's a huge balance with this whole idea of being in the world and not off the world. But I have to preach the thrust of James. And I want you to remember that God has sent us into the world to be missions, to be missionaries, to kind of work, to, to come alongside our work colleagues and our families and to kind of preach the gospel and, and its well, make use of the world around us. Make use of the mammon. Jesus said that. Make use of the things of this world. But don't make use of these things of the world where you become distracted with it and it becomes all you're living for. That this world is all there is. The frost of the text is saying, Think of the world to come. Think of the fact that we are trying to we are trying to cry, try to make this world. And that's why, you know, that's why I, I, I pity idealists, because at the end of the day, because of the systematic corruption that we're dealing with, we are never going to be in an ideal world where there isn't somebody at the top dictating to other people. Never going to come to that point. Sin won't allow it. We are always going to have to deal with the tough decisions. And it says that, Make your heart, put your heart in the world to come where where your treasures won't rust. Last week you heard about it will rust and it will corrupt here. But there it won't. Our patience and what James is teaching here, I hope, will lead us to put our hearts a little bit more, if not a lot more, in the world to come. Let's read our text and then pray. told you it was a long intro. <laughs> James 5, 7 to 12. Let me read from the ESV. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See now how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes. And your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation let 's pray, Father, here is a text before us. Here are we Lord, as as hopefully willing hearts to hear and to receive your word, Lord, and your encouragement and, and james 's application of patience, Lord, how do we teach patience? <laughs> we cannot, we can only just in, encourage our hearts to be patient, Lord, but Lord, helpfully, as we go through this text, we will see that the illustrations that James has given to us is actually helpful because sometimes we are, we are not exercising the right type of attitude towards you, Lord. And we need that to be corrected. I know I need that to be corrected. Speak to us through this text, Lord. Help us to get the application. And Lord, help us to move on, Lord, in our maturity as Christians today. Your spirit work, Lord, I pray, in and amongst us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> so verse 7. Hence, you know, I had to do that run-up momentum-wise because we need to get some stuff in mouth. Hopefully you're a little bit outraged. It's good if you are. But let's consider what verse 7 is saying. You know what? Whenever a, 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 an agrarian kind of illustration comes, you know, like Jesus used lots of things like vineyards, all the rest of it, and you know, a man sowing in a field and whatnot. We need to pause, because we're urbanites. <laughs> we, we we really, really do need to we don't we don't get it. If we're if we're honest, we don't really get ver you know, verse seven is not an illustration that is helpful to us if we've not grown up on a farm or in an agrarian culture or a rural culture. A rural context. And so we always need to pause at these things and say, what is it about that lifestyle that me living in an urban community, I will not get? <laughs> i tell you what you don't get for a start, is that imagine you only got paid once a year. And all that pay was basically tied to the weather. Why do you think back in the ancient world, the pagan religions were so prominent? Because they believed that there was a God over the rain and there was a God over this, and they needed to make sure they pleased the God so that they will get something at the end of the year. If you planted two crops, maybe you'll get paid twice a year. You know, different crops grow up different times of the year. The reality was is that we need to pause here and say, what is it about patience that a farmer has that me as an urbanite, I just don't get? Some of us are struggling because, like you said, it's difficult getting from month to month, let alone year to year on what we're earning. Some of us are struggling, you know, like today, this is payday weekend, isn't it? You know, payday weekend and, you know, now we're gonna be struggling into December. Done, Black, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, you know, we're done. I indulged a bit, you know, but I'm just telling you, we can be done. And we have to be honest with ourselves. And he said, you need the type of patience like a farmer has. God, help my crops to grow. God, help me to not be impatient. Help me to wait for my harvest to come. And that's the first thing he says to us. It will come. Don't worry. Wait for it. He's telling you about the whole idea of when will I get relief from the suffering of all these rich oppressors? You know, maybe again, something like for those BHS staff. My pensions in limbo. Be patient. That's what the text would say to you. Be patient. Don't try to lynch Philip Green and all the rest of it. That won't resolve your problem. Be patient. You're struggling, you know, are you in a tribunal issue with, your, with, a, with an employee? Be patient. See, your time will come, and you know, when you hear about the length of how long these tribunals can take to get your money, You know, years before your case is even heard, let alone given a decision on, and you're, you're, you're missing out on money. The patience of a farmer. Wait. You will reap in due season. It's not about lynching people and trying to get them done. You know, like I said, I think if, if any of us have been watching the news over the last, you know, five, six, seven years, we will see that um, trying to remove regimes, as, as Noam Chomsky was saying, is that you create a worse situation. You know, look at the Middle East, look at how that's been unstabilized. You take away one dictator only to get something even worse. Look at Libya today has still you know you would have thought, you know, wow, we' got rid of Gaddafi, but look at it, it's still multiple factions of people are living in instability, all because of our, our Western we, we, we know what really how, to, how, how people ought to live. You know what was helpful to me? I, I, I've um, I don't know if you ever read George Orwell's Animal Farm to kind of illustrate this. An excellent book. You know, I mean, primarily it's an allegory of the Russian Revolution, but it's this whole idea that Napoleon the pig gets into people's minds, that if we overthrow Farmer Jones, we can have a better, fairer society, and, you know, us animals all together will look after each other, and we will be there, And, and no doubt, probably, People get together in those little things and think, you know, yeah, if we take over, you know, we will do this, and you know what? <laughs> it's not about that. In Napoleon, they inherited an even worse dictator, to the point where the animals are kind of like thinking back to the better days of Farmer Jones. You know, be patient. Be patient. Verse 8. An established heart. What does that mean? Establish our hearts in this, in this thing. You know, Here's, I guess, my first, you know, the second kind of principle, you know, other than, you know, look at the farm, and look at the fact that they have to wait for their crop. He now is, you know, he says, so therefore now establish your heart. So it's a, it's a further application. He's now taking that and says now, so now establish your heart. What does that mean? Some of us think that patience basically means just waiting a little bit longer, but there's still a, there's still a limit. That's not patience. Establish your heart basically means have a resolve. Either I'm going to wait for God or I'm not going to wait for God. I am not going to put a limit on him. I'm not going to say, to the end of the, I'm going to give you to the end of this. And then if I haven't seen it, then I'm taking matters into my own hands. That's not patience. That's you just saying, I'm going to wait a little bit longer because my patience has already run out, but I'm just giving you a little bit of grace. That's not patience. But that's what we think patience is, isn't it? I'm going to give you a little bit more time. Yeah. It's not, it's not patience. That's not the virtue of patience outworking. An established heart is basically said, you know what? I'm resolved that, you know what? This is in God's hands. Let him deliver to me what is right. I like Daniel 3, 16 to 17 here for your reference, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what? They had a resolve. You know what? Even if God doesn't deliver us, still not going to bow. Do you know what? That's a resolve. Do you know what? Either way, we're always going to have a resolve. We're either going to be resolved to be impatient or be resolved to be patient. Everything is going to be based on an established heart. If I'm not really going to wait, my heart is already established. No matter what limit I put, basically I'm still in impatience. I'm, I'm resolved to be impatient. The resolve of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, even if the Lord doesn't deliver us, even if I don't get my money from my employer, even if this doesn't resolve itself, I'm resolved that God, what God gives me is good for me for this time. That's the resolve. Done. If you don't have that, you don't have patience in God. And you don't believe God is good. Let's take that as fact. Verse 9. You know, how do you know if your resolve is a... And I guess here we have is what you call a test. And so what you have in the text is that you normally have like a teaching, you know, establish your heart and resolve. Then you're going to go, how will I know whether that's really working or not? Verse 9 is that kind of text that bridges us to say, grumbling. Are you still grumbling? Because in your heart, what you're saying is that it's not what I wanted. <laughs> no, that's not what I want. So I'm going to grumble. I'm going to let it, I'm going to voice my disconcert. I'm, I'm discontented with the resolve. I'm discontented with what I'm seeing, so I'm going to grumble. I'm not, you know, and that's the test. This is how to read the Bible. That's the test. Grumbling. Are you still grumbling? you still letting anybody who will hear you hear your problems on this issue? You know what? I, I, like I said, let me let me. I, I'm 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 going to try and and this is me, to be honest with you. That kind of like define, grum- complaining and grumbling. I I, I'm, I I want to kind of distinguish the two, to kind of give information. I, I think complaining is kind of like giving you information. This is my complaint. You know, I can put down a complaint. You know what? I go to the thing. I take something back to the shop. You know, I've got I've got a complaint. This thing didn't work. Didn't do this. Da, 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 da. That's that's me just genuinely letting people know that I'm not satisfied. You know, I should, I'm not buying coffee from the thing anymore because they've changed it. So I'm going to Costa now. They had a nice Ethiopian blend down there. They're not selling it anymore. I should complain. Sweet coffee, man, and they changed it. You know, i got a coffee thing, right? And it's Calvary that gave me it. Never drank coffee until I came Calvary. But everybody met in coffee shops. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? One day I tried a the coffee so there, right, and then here I am today. Can't go a day without one. <laughs> but grumbling, you know, the Israelites were renowned for grumbling, weren't they? Here they are. They, they, come, out of, they come out of Egypt and didn't quite get what they want. And they grumbled and they let everybody know that they were discontent. And even when Moses provides something, you know, Numbers 11 is excellent for kind of illustrating this point. Again, put it in your notes, read it when you've got an opportunity, because, you know, they kind of like, (laughs) it's amazing how people are deluded, isn't it? They kind of come out out of slavery, they're in a new situation, they're traveling to a new land, and then the people uprise because now they start to remember their days back in Egypt. How they eat cucumber, <laughs> freely, <laughs> you know, freely, you know, and and they and they look at the manner that God has given, and, it's, and the text which says, this manner, God has given, we don't want it. How often do we sneer at God's provision? life, we actually got something, you know, but we don't want it. Hence, it leads to grumbling. This is, I didn't want that. This manner. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, Numbers 11, go to Martin Lloyd-Jones' website and, and, and listen to his teaching on that. He's, he is incredibly animated and he's a wonderful teacher on Numbers 11. And, <laughs> oh Lord, it is so us. We are so still in Egypt. We so, we so do want those things that we kind of like feel like, you know what, are kind of missing out. Oh. And I think just being in the UK kind of makes us feel that way. <laughs> in the world, not off it. We're angry because God has not, you know, as God or we we'll grumble against each other because they've not done what we expected them to do. We kind of have a limit in it. We kind of say, oh, this, is the, this is the answer I'm expecting. And I'm not accepting anything less. And sometimes, like you said, we, we kind of bypass the compromise and we kind of like, you know what, I just want what I want and, and done. As Christians, legitimate to complain, but illegitimate to grumble. If we make our case known, and you know what, we put the matter into the hands of God, like you said, the only thing we got left to do is to, is to go into an act of violence, isn't it? And some of us do. We start raise our voice or whatnot. Not about revolutions, man. You state the case and you say, you know what? I, you know, I, I have a phrase that I kind of normally do, you know, God judge between me and you. And leave it at that. You know, Jacob and Laban, innit? You know, they couldn't agree. About what was theirs and what was and At the end of the day, Laban had to say, you know what? God judged between you and me. I said, and that's how I've got to do it. And then that's the end of the matter. I put you in the hands of God. You know, tell that to the person on the checkout, the customer service guy. He's like, I said, I put you. Sometimes we need to make those kind of statements, you know. Because people, people tell you they don't believe in God. But read Romans 1 and <laughs> believe in God. Trust me. No real atheist, trust me. There is no atheist. You do that. Next time you come to a situation, you make your complaint, you know somehow you're in the right. God judge between you and me. And walk. See if, they, if you can have a good night's sleep after that. I don't know. I, I think I would take that seriously. I I would be okay. Hmm. Hmm. Wait. 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 (laughs) You know, it's not about aggression, guys. This is God's world. Verses ten and eleven. James now turns to the prophets as an illustration of the type of submission. Again, this is another illustration. So now he's kind of giving us an a, a, a established heart. Have I got an established heart? Are you still grumbling? You know, all right, okay, that's the test. 10 and 11 now basically is another, another illustration. He says, so let me compound the illustration of the father with the prophets and Job about being patient in suffering. If you are in any way familiar with Old Testament prophets, you realize that there is no glamour to the job. No glamour whatsoever. You can try and style it out as much as you want because we see these quote-unquote modern-day prophets. Do you know what I mean? And they not love it like that. You know, people like Jeremiah prayed, you know what, Lord, I ain't going to say nothing because I'm going to a stiff-necked, stubborn people who would rather... Kill me, they listen to anything that you have to say through me. Unglamorous. And they had to face hostility in the face of knowing that God is with them. But James's illustration is not that merely that they were people were hostile to them and they had to suffer. It's that, you know what, it's like it's, a, it's a interesting it, that Fidel Castro, isn't it, died yesterday, and, and one of his famous sayings was apparently that history. Will absolve me. I don't know about Fidel Castro being absolved. You know, I don't know enough about the man. But that's what James is pointing to here. He is saying it's not the fact that they suffered, because that's something to hopefully bring the reader into identifying with the fact that people do suffer even though they're in the right. That's the first thing to get. The second thing to get is that look at how history has vindicated them. Look at how history vindicated Jeremiah. It will come. It will come. It will come. It will come. Look at how history vindicated Isaiah. You will c- it will come. Say the temple. You say the temple. The temple will be destroyed. They were truth tellers and foretellers. And he says, look at that. That's the harvest at the end. Hebrews 11 is another one of my texts today that I think you need to reference in light of what happened. You will not see sometimes the thing that God wants to do through your life. You will not be there to actually see the vindication. But our faith in God, like the prophets in the past, is that there will come a day when people will say, wow, Look at how the saints were right. Look at how Jesus took this to the, to, to the Pharisees of his time. He says, you killed the prophets. You're standing basically doing this whole thing that you're, yeah, well, because they're vindicated now. He says that me likewise will be vindicated in time when you see these things come to pass. Went to the cross. And they're looking at him and saying, see? Nothing. You can't do nothing. Jesus said that's exactly what you did to the prophets, right? And look how history retold that. Everybody likes to think they're on the right side, isn't it? <laughs> only only one side, you know, God's side and then everybody else. Who is on the Lord's side? good old song, isn't it? Who's on the Lord's side? (laughs) You know, one of the things we have to understand about how trials, and this is again, uh, James recapitulate. you know, the theme basically is ending the letter and basically he's recapitulating all the things that he's kind of mentioned before. And you know the thing about a trial and, and why rejoice? It's not because, you know, um, Christians are supposed to be kind of like aesthetics, which is basically we, we, we kind of want to live in, you know, as monks and, and, and live with less and all the rest of it. It's not about that. He's saying that why should we rejoice at trials? Not because it's a, a, a way of self-flagellating ourselves, making ourselves suffer unneedlessly. What we under- need to understand about a trial is so that there is nothing that God will take away from our lives that we actually need. If God takes away a job, takes away a spouse, takes away a, a cushy way of life, He can't do that unless the things He wants to do in his, your life are actually contingent upon something else or are contingent upon those things. So basically, if God takes something out of your life, it could actually be helpful for focusing us on what God's got for us next. Because a lot of these things are not necessarily because they're evil off in and of themselves. But the reality is that, why do we rejoice when we go through trials? God is going to do something through me. This is going to focus me. Let me allow it to happen. Let me not fight him. Romans 8, 31, 35. I have to read this because it's a great passage and I think that whenever I go through a difficult time, I need to be focused on this. And you know what? If you don't, do, if you don't go back to, to chapters like this, even read the thing, I, I feel like, Boy, don't impoverish yourself. Pick up your Bible. Jump into some great texts. Romans 8, 31, 35. Let me read it with you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. See that there? God who justifies. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Yet sometimes we complain that we're unloved in the situations that we are. Where is God in this? And I don't mean that to mock you, but the reality is, is that we are, we are coming and affronting ourselves and saying, God is not good in this. Not that the thing is, is, not, uh, is not a bad thing. It's at the end of the day, we are denying God's goodness because he has removed something of our comfort and our assurance. Like his personality has changed, he's all of a sudden, he's cold towards us. Let me tell you something. I believe that, on a moral sense, and, and I think this is an important point, please pay attention, our moral compass, to some extent, has followed where the world has gone. And what do I mean by this? I mean that, the love of God and the commandments that relate to God and the love of God, i.e. the first four, are not the things that we tend to measure whether somebody's a good person or not. Like the world, we kind of tend to think that the best people in the world are good humanitarians, people that love other people. If I'm being loving towards somebody, it's pretty much governed on whether I am loving them. Let me tell you something. The love of God means that the decrees of God come before loving somebody. In that sense. So when, I, so when I, I, I condemn somebody for their sin, he say, well, you're not loving me. At the end of the day, it's my love of God that compels me. Our moral compass needs to be set by the love of God first. This is the commandment. First, love the Lord your God. Then love your neighbor by yourself. We tend to only do the second. Like the rich young ruler, he could do all the others. Oh, all this I've done for my youth. Then he gives him a commandment that you can only do when you love God. Says, I'll sell all you have. Last week, Jason used the illustration of, of whose image is on the coin, who do I pay taxes? It says, the image is Caesar's. He so give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Every Jew would have known that they were made in the image of God. What do I owe God? Myself! Let Caesar keep the money. I'm God's. His image is on me. I am God's. <laughs> Love God first. I'm going to jump to the foot, the last verse. Let me not talk that. Verse 12 is um, is a tricky one, because um, it doesn't quite marry with with what we've just we've just looked at, and it's not quite part of what we're going to get next week in prayer. And, but the thing is that we need to um, probably see it in the light of the whole thing that James has a lot to say throughout this letter about people talking, grumbling, and speeches and all the rest of it. I've done, a, I've done some considerable research on... on, on um, and obviously not to not, not write a of books worth, but I've done some considerable research on the whole idea of speech throughout the whole Bible. Speech is incredibly important. That's why Jesus comments on it. That's why Jesus says every idle word. We, we tend to... The Bible is, is, is kind of based in an oral-based culture, and we need to understand that as well. We can't get away from that. But we tend to be in a text-based culture. In other words, we tend to write things down and all the rest of it. And I say that to say that we tend to kind of like take the whole idea of oaths as kind of being this kind of ancient old thing. It doesn't relate. It doesn't we can't really be bound by our words, even though we've kind of used to use things like being a man of our word or being a person of our word. That kind of seems, has had, at least within our culture, an important stance that we were a people of our words. I say that to say that we tend to take things that we sign more seriously than the things that we say. If I sit down and I got a contract and someone puts out there text-based culture, we tend to be a bit more free, oh, okay, I'm putting my name to this, and all of a sudden, I have to sign this, and we tend to take that more seriously. Let me tell you that the reality is is that I have not got the time to probably go in and kind of unpack this the way I would like to unpack this. It's one verse amongst a few. But the reality is is that if we make a promise to somebody, we are not, because we are in a text-based culture, free, from from being bound to our words. If Jesus says it, if it's all throughout the Bible, you know what? Our word is important. Because you know what? I'm not a mind reader. The only way I can know what's going on in your heart is if you tell me. And if what you tell me isn't true or turns out to be true, you know what? That makes you a liar. I have misread because I can't read your mind. If you say, Richard, I will do this. And then you don't do it, you may be unintentionally a liar, but the reality is, is that's where our speech leads us. One of the illustrations in um, Warren Wearsby's um, commentary on James is that he says, you know what, if you're in one of those situations, and I know this is where we are at, and I think he is right to kind of use his illustration, where we promise someone an acorn, and he uses something very trivial for a reason. He promised somebody an acorn. I said, I'm gonna give you an April, I'm gonna give you an acorn once autumn comes. And you end up in a situation where all of a sudden in England all the oak trees will no longer give acorns. He said, Best send to Spain for an acorn at your expense than not to be a person of your word. We tend to think, oh, now it's going to cost us. So you know what? Let me renege. You have to understand the Bible context. Acts 23, 12, let me read this. It's an interesting one, because I don't know what the outcome of this one was, where basically um, Acts 23, 12 to 15, where a bunch of people uh, who are zealots, no doubt, to kill Paul, uh, go to the Pharisees, say we're going to kill Paul, make an oath about it, And all of a sudden, they said, you know, we won't eat until he's dead. Now, Paul never died for a number of years after that. (laughs) And if there are people of their word, those people, you've got some skinny guys (laughs) looking for Paul. And dying in the process. If they're men of their word. Because they made an oath. But the reality is, is that whether you put an oath to it, you know, by God, I'll do this. That's what he's saying, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. No one's tempting you to say anything more than you need to. You know, people can, can as it were, extricate a, a, a confession out of your life, but it won't stand. The reality is, is that if you, undisturbed, make a promise, and you say you put your yes to that, well, you've made enough or not, you're bound to your word. We don't get this, so don't, we don't get this. Trust me. Because we give out all kinds of promises because talk is cheap, because that's what we learn to believe. But the text brings us back. Like I tell you, the t- from Genesis to Revelation, speech is important. It's how we reveal ourselves. Better not to promise. He said, you know, what does Proverbs tell you? A fool is even considered wise when he holds his speech. True. Why weigh into a debate if you don't really know what's going on? Best ask for clarity. Not put forth a a position. Come on. Talk is cheap. But no, the Bible tells us otherwise. Our talk is important. I can only take you at your word. I can't diagnose your intent. I've got many examples here. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Faith is patient. This is the application. The sheet's going to be very simple this week. I give, give God thanks for that. <laughs> How can we work out patience? You know, Hebrews 11. Let me read Hebrews 11:13 13 to 16. This is, my, this is, this is another way of trying to apply this text to you and I said this is this text is key in understanding what James is getting at here these all die that is the prophets who is used and people like Job sorry I haven't gone into Job but I think the prophets are are, are a good illustration here that I want to kind of focus on more than probably Job because uh, one of the things the commentaries are saying that you know Job was known as a complainer in it but it's probably that there's a there was another um, apocryphal count of Job where he's kind of more of a less of a complainer that James is using as a, as a reference to Job. So I don't necessarily want to use that, um, but this is an important one and time is against us. So these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You know, I wanted to kind of use, as my final illustration today, Moses, as kind of a typical um, person of what it means to kind of like move on in life, to kind of get this whole idea of patience and the whole idea of being in a system that's corrupt as well. I love The Prince of Egypt. Loved it from the first time I watched it way back in, was it 1999? And it began with this kind of disclaimer of, you know, it's kind of, you note know, at the beginning that no nation on, built with slaves will ever really prosper in the, in the long run. And um, I love that movie, man. Lots of, I got you know I got the <laughs> got the songs and all the rest of it and it's weir- it's kind of weird you know over the years there are songs that have kind of always been on my playlist now it's kind of shrunk shrunk down and, and the and the one that really kind of gets me and has actually that I never liked initially as much as the others you know I like you know uh, you know y- y- look at your life in heaven's eyes you know that what excellent song you know used to love that. And I was into it. But you know the one that is constant, and you know it, it's kind of interesting because I caught it as I kind of listened, one of the few times I kind of listened to the whole album right the way through was All I Ever Wanted. And it's the key point. Many, it's the key point in the movie. It's the point where Moses makes a decision. Now, I'm not, you know, there's a lot of artistic license in, in Prince of Egypt, so I'm not condoning for that. But there is a point where when I, when I take you through the rest of Hebrews 11, where, his, where Moses is now accounted for, this helps me understand that process of what Moses was doing and what James is saying about moving out of and not putting our affections with a system that will never change. You may remove the Israelites, but it only means that some other people will be oppressed. Please forgive me if I try. And I, this is, I want you to listen to the words. So Moses, the context of this thing is that Moses has just discovered from Miriam. Let me kind of paint this one. Just discovered from his sister that he is a Jew, actually. And so this is some of the artistic likes so We don't know whether he knew from, from birth or whether it was something else later on. But anyway, Miriam tells him, and she says, check the archives. Check the archives of what, of what your father, the Pharaoh, did to us, our people. So he goes down into this this, this dungeon-like place where all these archives are and he sees for the first time the the killing of of, of the babies, of the Jewish boys. And he's traumatized by it all. And he runs upstairs and he lets Zipporah go and then he's kind of there looking at everything, all the luxury he has. And then he sings this song. Gleaming in the moonlight. Cool and clean and all I've ever known. All I ever wanted. And all I've ever known Only time you're gonna get me singing up here. But I can't just I can't hear it because it's it's resonating with me. <laughs> Sweet perfumes of incense graceful rooms of alabaster stone. All I ever wanted, this is my home. With my father, mother, brother, oh so noble, oh so strong. Now I am home. Here among my trappings and belongings, I belong. And if anybody doubts it, they couldn't be more wrong. I am a sovereign prince of Egypt, a son of, proud, of, a, of the proud history that's known, etched on every wall. He's now connected himself to what he's just seen. Surely this is all I ever wanted, all I ever wanted, all I ever wanted. He's now having to make a decision. He's now connected us in the song to the wall. And he's like said, is this what I want to be connected with? Is this how I want to be remembered? Is this the legacy I'm going to connect with? And you know, the weirdest thing is that the, 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 the softness of the mother is the reprise. And I think this is a masterstroke because it's almost like the mother is almost tempting him back. And she comes and the queen's reprises, this is your home, My son. Here the river bought you, and it's here the river meant to be your home. This is the voice of reason. This is the whole idea of this. Just is, is, accept life as it is. Now you know the truth, love. Now forget and be content. Put it aside. When the God sends you a blessing, <laughs> let's get religious about this. You don't ask why it was don't question the society in which we're growing up in don't question the fact that it was through slavery and through slaughter that we got here let's just move on if we're not careful there are people who are very loving, very kind who will try to dissuade us that this world is not as bad as we think it is stay here this is cool the mother was important because he really loved his mother and she was trying to bring him back. Christ hmm. by faith, this is Hebrews eleven twenty three to twenty seven. By faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Are you desperate to make this world work for you, that you have no patience for the kingdom to come? Can you make that decision that Moses made? Considering the fact that the systematic evil that this world represents no matter how much it tries to pass over it. We're in the world, isn't it? God has sent us into the world, not so that we can just sit and indulge in it, but he actually goes back to Egypt, not so that he can go there and sit in the palace again and put his feet up, but to get people out. Perfect example. Jesus sends us back into the world, not that we could sit down there and say, you know what, yeah, let me try and get my princely thing back on. Let me try and get my, my thing back on. Leave that to the, the prosperity guys who think they've got it figured out. Let's get real about what it is to be a Christian here today and if we understand the Bible in its context. Sent back to bring people out. To bring people out and say, you know what? Let's hope for a better land. Let's hope for a better kingdom. Let's hope for the kingdom that only God can build. There will always be pharaohs. And don't be, you know, for the majority of us being black, don't let us think that, Black slavery and slavery is all like back in the past. Slavery still exists today with different people. The system is still wrong. And we use what we can to set people free and hope for something better. The reproaches of Christ. Are you still grumbling? I think I've given you a little reason to stop grumbling. Start making a resolve. <coughs> Let me turn to Hebrews 4 as well. And we'll close with this. So, if the guys want to start coming up, I will close with this and then we'll pray. Therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it for good news came to us just as it just as to them but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened do you believe the good news today James is saying that Christ is at the door, ready to return. He will make this right. He will build a government in who, in where there will be no corruption. There will be no oppressor. Do we believe that today? Are we preparing our hearts for that today? Are we still trying to make this world Everything. And just coming here is just kind of like a a little, maybe if the kingdom comes, that might be nice. Let's pray. Father, this this is your word. The good news of Christ is that he has come, that we can be free, Lord, from feeling that this is all there is. You revealed your word through him, through the apostles and, the, and even from the prophets of ancient days that there were better things that you had helped and built for this world. That we are, we are not trapped in this system. That we can actually hope in something a little bit more. And something that's even actually greater, Lord. And this is what the good news is. That those who are fed up, those who are who have realized that putting all their eggs here, Lord, is not going to actually reap the rewards and even if it did lord it would only be corrupt and shrivel up and distort us lord in ways that are not right have your way in us lord as we kind of listen ponder what we might do with these words lord today from from the from the gospel of according to james lord as he looks at a church that's struggling and says fix up be patient for god stop your grumbling And wait with a resolve and establish our hearts in the fact that you are good. And you will fix all things. And you will wipe away all tears. All the beautiful vision and revelation of what the world to come will be like. No more sorrow. Lord, help us to long. And trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.